You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. If you tuned in last week and you're up to date on your news, you know that a political movement to radically rewrite the U.S. Constitution has been gaining momentum. This week, we're airing the second half of our conversation with former Senator Russ Feingold and Peter Prindeville, co-authors of The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Together, they address the dangers and risks involved with a politically motivated redrafting and how this movement threatens both our national security and democracy as a whole. Thanks for listening, and here's Harvey. I think we all would agree that it's not a perfect document, that there are some problems. And a problem I think is just gaining sort of a momentum is the fact that we've now had five times in which someone wins the popular vote yet loses the presidency, which I think sits for, with many of us a little bit uncomfortably. And as we talked about earlier in the prep for this meeting, there is a movement that's afoot to change the electoral college with the popular voting sort of compact theory, and that they have 15 states that have signed up. And some people think that if they get a few more states, so they get to the magic number of 270, which you know is what you need to go over the top for the presidency, that this will be somehow a backdoor behind the famous Article 5 that you guys are expert on. Do you concur with that theory or do you think that theory is flawed? What does your the Article 5 expert say about this approach? Harvey, full disclosure, long before I got deep into Article 5, I was helping with this movement. And, you know, some people call this National Popular Vote Initiative a workaround. People use that pejoratively. Others say, yeah, it's a legitimate workaround. It's based on the compact clause which is a completely different provision of the U.S. Constitution. If you're a pure textualist, it looks like the compact clause that everything that has to be done by compact has to be approved by Congress. Just for our viewers, Article 1, Section 10, I believe, is that clause. And it's very interesting because it's one of those things that they call historical gloss. Over the two centuries, there have been many things that have been considered not within that definition that Congress, right. if it's something that has nothing to do with the operations of the federal government or the relationships of the states, then you don't have to get congressional approval. Now, this one, you know, there would be a heck of an argument that maybe it does. And obviously, I think the current Congress might say fine to it, but maybe the Congress that gets elected in November won't. But the point is, is that I think it is a separate, legitimate way to potentially numb the effects of the way in which the Electoral College has worked out. It's a compact. If you get enough states to do it, you can implement it. And this one, I think, unlike this one, the Article 5 question of a convention, I think the Supreme Court would take it. I think they would mm-hmm. look at it. I think they would rule. I'm guessing it might not go well for the national popular vote movement, given the current court. But I do see this is far more legitimate from the point of view of constitutional change outside of Article 5. It is not really constitutional change. It's another way of interpreting the compact clause. But Peter and I make it very clear that our, one of our greatest concerns is that this Article 5 convention would lead to a constitutional crisis that would not be able to be resolved. This mm-hmm. one would be resolved. This national popular vote probably would be resolved by a Supreme Court decision. Harvey, I would just add that these contemporary activists who are attempting to really reimagine Article 5 
They call Article 5 a convention of states, a term that appears nowhere in the Constitution, appears nowhere in the debates of the 1787 convention. And to bolster this theory, they really are attempting to reimagine an Article 5 convention through the lens of the Compact Clause. Indeed, they call del- they insist with a particular fur that delegates to an Article 5 convention are commissioners, which is a term that really only comes up in the context of interstate compacts. And so we took a deep dive on this in the notes in the book. It, it seems quite clear that they're attempting to kind of shuffle into the Compact Clause notion because it, it's in line with their understanding that the states as sovereign entities constituted the federal regime and thus can reform it without really any popular concern. And so the two issues are related, but any attempt to kind of circumvent Article 5 or a convention by way of the Compact Clause strikes me as as a serious constitutional. In fact, what they're really doing is saying that somehow the founders decided to use the Compact Clause as a way to go right back to the Articles of Confederation. Well, they're turning the clock back because, you know, prior to the Civil War, it's the United States are, and then it becomes the United States is. So are you think that deep in the movement is trying to recreate the sense of sovereignty of the original states and make it appear as if we're dealing with almost really separate sovereigns that have to be treated such and have to then have a renegotiation of what they're willing to give up and what they want to retain? I think that is part of it, but I think it's worse than that, as I mentioned earlier. They're trying to create the state legislatures as the sovereign. Absolutely. Because they're not they're not going to do that well with with, you know, look at Kansas on the Dobbs decision. They don't want the popular will anyway. So what they want to use is the tool and the distortion of the role of state legislatures. So, yes, it's really being from the state that has this split government, a progressive governor and a malapportioned Mm -hmm. state legislature. It's worse than just the idea of the states be having greater power. And I think all you have to do is look at the politics of it. This term convention of the states didn't enter the mainstream conservative parlance until around 2010, right around the same time that Republicans took a lot of the state legislatures. And so I think it's part of a broader story of attempts to reimagine the body politic and reimagine the constitutional union, but founded by sovereign states that can then be reformed, not by we the people, the language of the constitution, nor the declaration of independence, but rather this notion of a confederation We're talking about this movement, and I think it's important to say who's behind this movement at this point. I think that that might be helpful to better understand why alarm is being raised. Well, there there are a number of groups that are advocating for a convention. There's one called Convention of States Action. They the broadest proposal. There's another group proposing term limits, and there's another seeking a balanced budget amendment. And these groups, Primarily, the Convention of States group is particularly well organized. They have a political action arm that that donates funds in state legislative races and has received a lot of the Mercer family, the Koch brothers and others. And so it has really kind of found its way into the mainstream far right. For example, Rick Center, Rick Santorum, who's now working for the Convention of States project, was just on Steve Bannon's podcast last week. It's gotten this cast of characters, John Eastman, Jenna Ellis, some others involved in the January 6th assault on the Capitol have been at the heart of this movement since the mid-2010s. So as you know, you guys have written beautifully, very well crafted, but the problem is, you know, is that it's unclear how many Americans read books anymore. So how do you guys think of overcoming this to the non-lawyers? Because, you know, we say Article 1, Section 10, we're dealing with Article 5. Most Americans have no grasp of what we're talking about. It's a very insider conversation. 
What is your sense about how to go about make this issue work in a way that's accessible? You got to go on podcasts, first of all. You know, already today we were on WGN talking about this to a broader audience. We did this podcast. We are going, you know, to bookstores where people, you know, willingly come uh, who aren't always lawyers. And of course, we're going to many law schools and we are doing whatever we can to get in the mainstream media to talk about it. And frankly, uh, there's a lot of interest in it. Now, it is technical, but as people begin to see what we're saying, which is the same people are connected to this as the January 6th people, John Eastman and people like that, and the whole theory about the legislature being able to disregard election results and the illegitimate capture of the Supreme Court. When people see it part as a broader attack on, on democracy, it gets out of that sort of super technical area. It, you're right, it's not easy. But, you know, essentially, if you just say, look, do you really want a bunch of people stream right-wing state legislatures rewriting the Constitution? You know, it becomes a little more accessible. Well, in defense of the book, I thought it was incredibly accessible. I thought that was one of the best things about it, to be perfectly blunt. So part of, I think, this conversation about not reading books and and pushing out the message is the fact that we're dealing with a lot of false information right now. Everybody is pushed into information silos. And we've got cable, at least, television now divided based on a particular, you know, Velshin shown, whatever you want to call it. And I just wonder how you pierce that divide, how you bridge that divide, how you bring people who don't necessarily see the long-term view. It's very short-term thinking to like some of these ideas because they sound good in the abstract. I'd like more money in my pocket, or I don't particularly like this part of the federal government, although I probably don't know that much about it. But how do you, in addition to what you're doing as a country, how do we come together and talk about these things truthfully when in candor, we seem to have lost our lingua franca? Well, it's a very difficult thing because it's unprecedented failure to listen to other people and to be reasonable. You know, the whole reason I wanted to be a legislator, I thought it'd be fun to take my background, my legal training into a setting where you'd meet all kinds of different people, different philosophies, different professions, and you sort of reason things together. Of course, it wasn't always like that, but sometimes it was, and it was a marvelous moment. Now, it's my belief that it's not the legislators that really want to do It's their constituents that have demanded that they not cooperate with each other. And so they go there and they might try to work with the other side and they get in trouble, especially on the Republican side. They get a primary against them if they cooperate with other people. So what we need is the spirit of Liz Cheney and others who are saying, you know, there are certain things that are outside the the pale and that are unreasonable. Peter told me a story that the supporters of the person that defeated her had lapel pins, right, Peter? Right. I I was watching on Twitter a a video from a rally, an anti-Liz Cheney rally in Wyoming. And I was just so surprised to see that almost every single person in the video was wearing a lapel pin in favor of an Article 5 convention. The movement must have had a booth or something at a fair. And I think it was just, to me, it was a perfect encapsulation of where this Article 5 issue has found real ground on the far right of our public life and is cause for great concern. I just would also add that as we detail in the prologue to the book, there are Republicans, some of whom are quite conservative, who oppose this convention movement as well, along similar lines as we do. And in every state where these applications have been brought up for a vote, there have often been a few Republican dissenters. And so we hope that people of goodwill you know, across the ideological spectrum will look at this issue with a cool head, 
examine the legal issues and come to the same conclusion. That's why we wrote the book and, and hopefully we can begin that kind of conversation. Well, is there anything else that you guys would like to add to this conversation? I think Elizabeth has raised the problem of we have a failed communication issue between the two camps that have evolved and that your concern is that the Article 5 may be, I would say, captured by one of these camps, push for it, and just lead to more dissidence inside the political sort of atmosphere and where we're at and cause a really fundamental crisis, which would be very difficult given the way the country is divided. Do you have a magic way of thinking through this issue so that we can avoid the crisis? Or do you think there's a certain inevitability given how diverse the two camps are at this point? Well, there's no magic, but I do think that Public education in this can help prevent the convention from being called in this partisan environment. But, you know, our book is, is called The Constitution in Jeopardy, and it, it involves right. twin jeopardies, as we write. One is this one we've been talking about. But the other one is what we call the stagnation or ossification of the Constitution, the fact that it's exceedingly hard to amend, right. the hardest one to amend in the world. So Peter and I propose in the book near the end that, that there be a constitutional amendment passed by Congress, which is not easy, but that would change Article 5, that would basically say, okay, as Bob LaFollette of Wisconsin sort of proposed that a majority of states by popular vote would have to vote for an amendment and there'd be a national referendum that would have to pass. So it would still be not pure majoritarianism. We also would nail down this thing that they didn't get done in Philadelphia a couple hundred years ago, which is that, that there would be uh, a clear thing in the constitution about how applications are counted and subject matter. And there's some other proposals, but we believe that we do need to be able to amend the Constitution. It would be better, of course, to simply get rid of the Electoral College than trying some kind of a workaround. Many of us believe there should be a right to vote in the Constitution, so you can't undercut the right to vote, that there probably ought to be a provision about climate change or the environment. Uh, there are things that need to reflect the reality of the 21st century. So we do call that the way forward. We don't think it's easy. We weren't able to write a whole book about it, but we do think you have to have that view of how to legitimately, I shouldn't say legitimately, because Article 5 mm. mechanisms are legitimate, but in order to amend the Constitution in a way that reflects this country in the 21st century, which is exactly what George Washington felt. He felt that this thing should be able to be reflected by future generations. He said, I do not think we are more inspired, have more wisdom, or possess more virtue than those who will come after us. And that's why Peter and I think this needs to be changed in order to give that that statement some meaning. So I think there is consensus. The current document is becoming an impediment for us to create consensus. It's got some real problems. You can't amend the Constitution in a somewhat collegial way and engage the American people. I, I think that's a pretty serious problem, right, Peter? Oh, precisely. Yeah. And it's, it's quite clear that the Constitution poses some major impediments to you know, modern life. And that's why we argue that we need to rekindle a debate in public life today about formal constitutional change. We need to be debating as a first order inquiry, what is the role of the Constitution in a modern democratic and what does it mean for that Constitution to be binding upon all? As Washington said, binding until an obligatory on all until an explicit and authentic act of the people changed the document. We think that we need to make that founding belief real today. We need to have a, a serious debate to amendment itself, both to re rekindle this debate and also think intently about these procedural issues that, that are so troubling, as, as we said. Yes, and the idea of individual states as basic fiefdoms, I think, is very appealing to our foreign adversaries. 
And so if that's the direction this takes, it will have quite predictable consequences, I think, for our national security and is another situation where the secondary and tertiary consequences are obviously not being discussed by the people pushing this for reasons that I don't think are are very clear. But I will say that we have observed, as you know, in a lot of other groups like NRA, where Russian espionage, external operations have manifested, they've been targeting individuals in these groups. And so I, I would like to believe that there would be no foreign interference in some a movement like this, but I find it very hard to believe, given what we've seen over the last five years, that that would not also occur and probably is occurring right now. And it, I think it would be naive to think otherwise. Harvey, you can contradict me. No, I would say that, you know, we always talk about the potential fragmentation of China as breaking into parts because of the problem they have internally. But it's a new phenomena to think through that we would internally fragment and remove ourselves from the playing field, which would be a huge advantageous solution for the autocratic regimes from Russia and Iran and China. And if we are not there on the world stage standing for these values, it's truly unclear to me who's going to be there to do it, given the current situation that we're observing in Ukraine. And that there will be a lot of champagne popping in Beijing if it turns out that we will have a convention that breaks apart our understanding of the federal structure with no Congress with an effective mechanism to play a role and have capacity and a budget on the, on the world stage. So that's a very frightening sort of concept, I would say, Elizabeth. I don't know. What do you think, Russ Feingold? Yeah, think Is that beyond hard. imagination? No, no, it's not. And Harvey, that was a powerful statement. I recently led a delegation to the European Law Institute. Uh, I remember the American Law Institute, and we went uh, had a rough it in Madrid for a week. But, you know, so the Europeans were very welcoming to us. It was the first time the American Constitution Society had actually sent a delegation. Mm-hmm. And they came up to us and they said, well, we're really glad you're here because we're very worried about you. We believe that if your democracy, as Harvey was saying, starts collapsing, that it will cause us to not be able to continue. So I think you're you're dead on with that comment, Harvey. There is real concern uh, in the parts of the world that don't believe in autocracy. And since then, Italy's gone another way. So this is, um, you know, this is a a scary development. Italy's gone that way this week. (laughs) Well, but as you know, I was in England when the Queen passed away, and the concept that Charles III will be able to hold the empire. What's left of it is unclear. So we're seeing a sense of devolution taking place on a range of our allies. And if we fit into this devolution theme that is happening in the West, it only reinforces the sense of us removing ourselves and these other major ally countries removing themselves because they're so preoccupied with their internal focus that there isn't much left over to have capacity for the external world that we're dealing with. Hegemonic upheaval. So on that cheery note. Uh, <laughs> All right, with that dystopia <laughs> in mind. Happy holidays. Happy holidays. You better read this book. You better you read the book. Start thinking about these issues. You can't tuck them away until after you have that yes. nice soy latte. It's time to sit up and pay attention. It might be the perfect gift for young Kipper. So um, I think it's going to be a stocking stuffer for you guys. I don't want that on the flap of the book. (laughs) That might be a great way of marketing it. It's a little grim. (laughs) 
but oh. you, as you know, your arguments lead one to those conclusions, I think. That's the scary part of the book, because it leads you to that. Fair enough. Panic is the word. I think <laughs> Widespread panic, the kind to be avoided. So any last words from you gentlemen before we sign off? I just want to say we've done lots of appearances on this in the last few weeks, and this has been excellent. To, to have this lens of national security, to have people think about this, not just as some wonky uh, legal thing, mm -hmm. even though Peter and I enjoy delving into that sort of thing. It really helps mm -hmm. us all think about what Peter often describes as a, a national conversation about right. the, the need to be able to change a constitution without destroying it uh, by a certain far-right element. Completely agree. And I would just thank the many, many of your listeners who are working right now uh, on national security issues. The book is about the founding ideals that so many of you spend your days trying to protecting both, both here and abroad. And so, like Russ said, I, I hope that your listeners can be part of this conversation and that we can work to both address this contemporary threat, but as we said before, also think intently about our constitutional values in the 21st century and, and what constitutional change really means today. I'll let Elizabeth sort of sum up, but you know, the famous Jackson phrase, the constitution shouldn't be a suicide pact. That becomes the real issue if we start moving down these type of roads. All I have to say is it was really a pleasure to see this book on the shelf of politics and prose and to, to read it because I do have concerns that our political differences have driven us to a point where we're acutely vulnerable and we're so busy fighting each other, we don't really see what's coming. And I think this was another alarm bell and another signal to people, wherever your political view is, that it's time to put your pencils down for a few minutes and begin to think what it really is to be an American and what it really means to have a constitution rather than sparring with the next person over culture issues that at the end of the day, are driven by the need of media outlets to monetize that which we, they can't anymore. We don't have newspapers, so you've got to drive it federally and drive it to culture wars. And it's issues like what you're talking about with this convention movement that should be cause for alarm for everybody because it's, it's just very, very poorly thought out and short-sighted in a way that is really quite incredible. So thank you for writing this. Thank you for making it so accessible. And I really appreciate you giving us time because we know right now you are highly sought after, <laughs> highly sought after men. And we're grateful to you, but we also want to let our listeners know that we're going to go ahead and put some hyperlinks in the notes because we try to be one-stop shopping. We'll put, of course, you know, vendors where you can get this book and we recommend, you know, buy it, read it, listen to it. If you absolutely don't have the time to read because you're doing 50 things you should at least listen to it. And I think that's important. And I believe you have an appearance next week in Philadelphia. And I'd like to be able to link that as well in case some of our listeners live in that area and would like to come out and perhaps have a more sort of one-on-one -on -one dialogue with both of you. And that's about it. I'm just really glad that you gave right. us your time tonight, gentlemen. Thank you so uh, much. And I hope one day to have an adult refreshment with you two gentlemen so that we can go deeper into these kind of dry issues of the Constitution. Sign us up for that. Okay. We'll try to keep them us. from ever being dry. <laughs> we'll try. We'll try. All right. Our guest tonight has been Russ Feingold and Peter Prindeville, authors of the important new book that we commend to you, The Constitution in Jeopardy, an unprecedented effort to rewrite our fundamental law and what we can do about it. Again, we will provide you with links to where you can purchase the book and where you can locate their speaking engagements. 
And I want to thank you all for listening tonight to NSLT. We know that you don't have a lot of time and you've given over some of that to us this evening, but we ask that you share this episode with a friend, perhaps somebody that doesn't share your political views or doesn't look like you or both. And why don't you have coffee and talk about it? I think that might be a very good use of your time and a good act of civic responsibility. We do encourage you on NSLT to speak to persons who don't look like you and don't share your views because we think that's in the interest of the national security of the United States. We also wanted to let you know that we have an annual national security law conference occurring on September 17th and 18th in Washington, D.C. It's in person. Just remember, social media is not networking. You need to show up. You need to talk. You need to clink a glass and have some fun. So check the agenda out. We'll make sure that you can do so in the notes as well. If you need to reach out to us, please do so on Twitter at ABA NatSec or send us an email at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org. Our producer is me, Elisa Poteet, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salito is our program manager. Holly McMahon is a co-producer with me, along with being an amazing leader of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. And of course, I'm grateful to Harvey and the advisory committee. Thanks for tuning in. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.